It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is presented by Ericsson. Tomorrow's mobile technology is built on the work we do today, and bold innovations are driving us forward to a more connected world. Our landmark 5G patent application outlines the complete network architecture for this new standard and lays the foundation for future mobile networks in Europe and beyond. Visit ericsson.com to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. We've got a great lineup on today's podcast, so I'm not going to bore you with a long introduction. First up is Commissioner Carlos Moedas. He's the European Commissioner for Research, Science and Innovation. I caught up with him a couple of weeks ago. We did a tour in a car and around his favorite park, the Parc Saint-Contenaire in Brussels. And we promised we'd turn it into a podcast as well. So that's why you're hearing us in the back of a car and in one of Brussels' nicest parks. And in the podcast panel this week, we've got a very special lineup. In addition to Lena Rabarus and Alva Finn, we're joined by Zoya Sheftalovich, who you'll know from the Brussels Playbook, which she writes with Florian Ada. Zoya is normally based in Sydney, but she's here in Brussels for a few weeks. And so we are tapping her brain to hear about the Macron fuel protests and his climb down and what Denmark is doing to move a bunch of convicted criminal migrants to an island far, far away from the rest of Danish civilization. And now we turn to Commissioner Carlos Moedas. So this is a hybrid car. What cars do you drive at the Commission? Look, we have different cars from hybrids. Uh, I've driven myself a fuel cell car. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had that before. Have you seen I it? Feel I haven't. But it's I feel fantastic. like your life is all about the future. Electric cars, uh, yeah. all that. So we do a lot. I mean, we, I, I do a lot. I, I love the idea of having like cities with no emissions, mm-hmm. uh, cities that are clean. And so I'm working on that. The other thing I missed was Web Summit in Lisbon. Wow, again, it's fantastic. In your home country, Portugal. I mean, there was a very moving moment to see Tim Berners-Lee on stage, mm-hmm. right? Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the internet. And basically the mood changed because before it was just about the internet and the digital. And now it's like, look, this is all great, but what about democracy? What are the effects of... Because he's having second thoughts now, isn't he? He's wondering what monster did I create? Absolutely. And so he changed the mood, right? It started... So the whole thing was geared more to AI for humanity, digital for democracy. And so it was very, very good and it was very inspiring. I think it's one of really the best places I go every year. So I I, I love it. And on the commercial side of things, did you see big new companies arriving or big new innovations? Are we actually going to be able to compete against the US and China or are we sort of... Uh, 
putting ourselves in a position where it's going to be a real struggle to keep up with our competitors. I think that this is like a marathon. So you have the US, you have China and the EU, mm -hmm. and we are all running. And so the question is that how do you run? First, do you run just uh, in your side and you don't talk with others, or do you cooperate? And I think that if you cooperate, you run faster. Yeah. And secondly, I think that, you know, I'm really against this idea that you have to, in Europe, you need a Silicon Valley. I think that we have uh, our European Silicon Valley, which is this network of amazing cities that you have today. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lisbon, Amsterdam, Berlin. And the things you see is that there's this generation that is creating great companies. And so how are you going to see the society in the future and what kind of technologies will help on that? How are you going to use blockchain to reduce inequality? And those things are very European because we really care about it and our yeah. young people really care about it. How will blockchain reduce inequality? That's the first I time I've heard of it. Look, I've heard of it making things more secure, yeah. but that's a new thing for me. I think that's the part that I find really interesting about mm -hmm. the blockchain because blockchain is about just like getting rid of intermediaries. Yeah. So, for instance, if you have a system where you have all your land registry on the blockchain, that for democracy is great because no dictator can come to a country and say, oh, this Take piece of land is mine. Yeah? Yeah. So that's one. The second is that in blockchain, because you get rid of the intermediaries, so when I take an Uber or I go into an Airbnb, mm -hmm. I'm leaving a lot of that profit to the intermediary, which yeah. is Uber or Airbnb. Yeah. So I could imagine an Uber like that will be peer-to-peer, -peer, and that will help me to put people that today have no jobs mm -hmm. in the economy. So yep. you bring a lot of people to the economy and you are paying them for the value they produce. And that's where you see that technology is really neutral because you can yep. do both things. It can be very good or very bad. Now that you mentioned how you can use technology in different ways, the mm -hmm. thing that really popped into my head was artificial intelligence. Yes. And we actually had questions from readers. So people ah, were tweeting okay, with me okay, okay, with okay, questions. Okay. So we got a question from Lucas yeah. Poulton. Mm -hmm. What is your definition of AI? AI is artificial intelligence, is not intelligence. And I think also you have to help people to understand that AI is not the intelligence or the human intelligence. AI is the ability to get uh, and associate a lot of numbers together, which we don't do very well. So that can help us to be more intelligent. But AI is very far and it will not be in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And even, I mean, in the best places I have been, in labs and scientists, they tell me, look, I mean, for the AI that people imagine that will be like the human intelligence, we are talking about 300 years. We're not talking about something that will be in our lifetimes. So people should not be afraid of AI. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I've been fighting. And I mean, you know, we were uh, together also in different conferences organized by political, by the yeah. way. Very interesting that my role has been always to be optimistic about mm -hmm. it. Because the number of things that you can get out of it, from curing diseases to spotting cancer before a doctor can with his own eyes yeah. or with his own analysis. All those things are what I want AI to be. And I think that's mm -hmm. other parts of the world that look at AI more at robots, robots that look like humans. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's that interesting. And so uh, that's my vision. And uh, I think that's the vision that you see in Germany too now that President Macron launched with AI for Humanity with yeah. Cédric Villani. 
And so there's where you see that I, actually we have a lot in common in Europe. Yeah. It's not something I have not been fighting for my vision with the European countries. Everybody and all that like, no, this is it. This is what we want. Yeah. What's the mix of factors that is going to allow Europe or Europeans to put their own stamp on a field mm -hmm. like AI? I think money is important and of course you have here like something that is quite unfair is that these big US companies have a lot of cash and so you have a lot of private money that in the US is going to AI, which is not public money. Uh, you have China that has a totally different vision from ours and so it's a very state-driven vision of AI and data. And we have a vision that is about this AI for humanity and so we need to invest more, that's for sure. But it's about also attracting the private sector into yeah. the game and for that I think that we are doing the right thing. We are trying to get the private sector to have less barriers in between the countries with the digital single market. I praise a lot the work of my colleagues Ansip and Gabrielle because they have been like fighters about mm -hmm. this uh, digital single market that is so important to attract the private capital. And so that's why I've launched this idea of the fund of mm -hmm. funds that we have called InvestEU, which was the idea of getting a little bit of public capital with a lot of private capital. Yep. We hope we can reach around two billion and those two billion can leverage around 10 or 11 billion. And, and so that's like your mini Juncker investment plan. It's like the, yeah, the, like the mini Juncker for uh, venture capital yeah. uh, in private equity. So this is the part yeah. that I normally run. Uh -huh. I come here you do the laps around the outside? No, no, or? yeah, no, I go around. So I come yeah. from my, I come from home and then yeah. I just go around the park. It's 2.5 yeah. kilometers if you do the whole uh, round. And you know there's the secret 5. running track in there. No? What's that? You've never been to the running track? No, the running track, yeah, yeah, yeah I've there. seen it, yeah, but yeah. I've never been to the running track. Yeah, 356 meters. Okay, I got very okay. disappointed. I tried to do 400 meter laps. And I, I was like, <laughs> I'm so fast. It's amazing. This training is going so well. And then I was like, it's not actually 400 meters. What are your plans in 2019? Are you going to try and come back as a commissioner? Or are you maybe even running in the elections next year? No, so I, I'm, I'm not going to run for the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. I think that it's probably time now for me to go back to, to Portugal. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, I... Is I, that a retirement? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm still, I mean, not as well, young not, as not you. Well, not literally but. a retirement, no, 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 no. but that is a... But, uh, uh, but I don't see myself now. I, I really, I loved the job. I loved the experience of being a commissioner. No. I like very much, I really like mm -hmm. the parliament. Yeah. But I think, like, I probably would like to come back to the parliament mm -hmm in five years or yep. ten years, mm -hmm. but not immediately after being a commissioner. Yep. So, uh, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, yep. but uh, my plan is that after these five years, mm -hmm. I would uh, go back to you my country. You could go country. be a startup guy. Yes, I would love to go back and try to help people in the, I mean, I, like in the private sector or not even, I mean, in some kind of mm -hmm. organization to help startups. Yep the European Institute of Technology. In my mind, that was something that the former commission, yeah. Rosso, your Portuguese yeah. compatriot, yeah. where he wanted to create a kind of European MIT, the Massachusetts yeah. Institute of Technology. Is it really needed? Does it really exist? Do you want to make the case for it? No, no, it, I mean, first of all, it exists and yeah. it is extremely important. It's under the education commissioner. Okay. And so it's more about this linking between education and research. Yeah. They create these very important communities that mm -hmm. they call the KICS 
KIC, okay. Okay. and those communities work in health, in energy, developing yep. startups, and then and these we are like fund virtual that. Communities and, virtual, yeah. and that's what that's why I wanted because there are so many brands. Mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to have this idea of the European Innovation Council, yep. which I think is a very lean idea, of saying all these things together. Mm -hmm let's put it in one-stop shop and that one-stop shop is called the European Innovation Council. How does Europe make a success of its innovation plans when it doesn't have the sort of military funding base or imperative that the US has? So what can Europe do without that kind of stimulus that the US has but look, I to think get that its innovation going? Two things. I think the, the strength mm. of the US in terms of research is that they have much more funding at the federal level. Yeah. So f almost 50% of the whole yeah. funding is at the federal level. Yeah. That makes that the National Institute mm -hmm. of Health is like yeah. 30 billion a year. Yeah. We have 10, 11 billion a year yeah, for yeah. the horizon. So first of all, it's like they are bigger because we are just 8% yeah. of the funding. Yeah. So it's not just because it's military, it's because yeah. it's like much bigger at the top. And then I think that we have tried in the European Innovation mm -hmm. Council so I've spent a lot of time first reading and doing conference calls with the US yeah. to try to see what are the elements of the DARPA system yeah. that would be good for our European Innovation Council. If you think about technology and democracy, you know, instead of having more choice, so like in your life you can take the Uber, you can mm -hmm. do public transportation. But then I go to Netflix or I watch a movie or a YouTube and I have less choice because they will put me just what I want to see. Yeah. So technology that was so good for us and our mm -hmm. lives, yeah. I mean, is destroying somehow democracy. I mean, you have to be courageous to say yeah. this, but I think it's important to say it. That, and that's why we have to focus on how to use technology to fix democracy mm -hmm. because democracy was a concept that was not digital or digital also makes life convenient enough that yeah. some people say well i don't care about democracy i can watch my yeah, netflix that's so why, who that's, cares that's, as long yeah. as the trams work and as long as i can go home and watch my tv yeah. then i don't need to worry about sort yeah. of how how that happens i've been going a lot to schools and high schools and talking to young people because yeah. what you said is right and so we have to fight that back. I mean, you go to uh, see these young kids and they say, mm -hmm. look, I don't care what you vote, but you have to vote. Yeah. And you have to understand that the comfortable life you have is yeah. because we are here. Very rarely I've seen people talking good things about the commission and they did it when we did the GDPR for yeah. data protection. Yeah. And Europe is doing something that at the national level would be impossible. Yeah. So you have to cherish that. But yeah, it's like in everything, you just take everything you have for granted and mm -hmm. then someday you don't and, and then there'll be trouble. Should yeah. EU money only go to EU-based firms? You know, I think that uh, the, anything that relates for me like Europe first or we against them mm -hmm. politically, it's so wrong. I mean, it creates these kind of like enemy kind of politics, politics mm -hmm. about the enemy. And so I don't like that. I think that science is really to be open. I mean, there's very few things today that you can do alone as a country, as a university. And so you can do much more together. You yeah. can, if you share knowledge. And so I think that 
we should be open, but not naive. Yeah. So one is of China things, open, for example, or that's, that's do a they case, try and look, do it on their own? That's a case that I've been working with the government in China to have reciprocity, mm. because I know that a Chinese company that is in Europe, if they come to my program, they can get money from Horizon yeah. 2020. But if a European company is in China, they mm. cannot get money from the government. So mm. we have been working hard to tell the Chinese, look, I mean. This cannot go on like this. We need reciprocity. Well, maybe that brings us back to the budget discussion yep. that you're in the middle of right now. So you already have a significant amount of money, but now this is the yeah. fun part of your term. Uh, you said this is the fun part. I mean, this is a very mm. difficult part of my term. I mean, I think that a lot of uh, people are looking mm. the elections, etc. And I've been working very hard in Thai to have an agreement before. That's my dream is to get yeah. this agreed before the European election. And why is that? Does it really have to happen by that day? Like, I tell you why. Because yeah. everything takes long, mm -hmm. and if you want to have a budget by 2021, yeah. which like the first of January, then you have to agree a work program for those two years, two yeah. years before. Mm -hmm. So you're talking 21, 2019. Yeah. So in 2019, if we don't have mm -hmm. everything prepared. It can happen that then comes a new parliament. It yeah. takes time for them to get together. It's yeah. not the next day. So the yeah. parliament's not, it's not in June 2019. It will be yeah. like September, October. And it can happen that by 2021, mm -hmm. you don't have the budget there. And so yeah. uh, people will have uncertainty. Yeah. And the worst thing for companies or for scientists is uncertainty. But still, I mean, it's so much work because that's what people don't understand. I mean, this was built, the European Union mm. project, in a way that there's so many checks and balances yeah. that uh, everything takes time to agree. Yeah. So you cannot just as a politician to say, OK, it's agreed. No, 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 yeah. no. There's a process. And that yeah. process is important because that's the guarantee of our democracy yeah. and the guarantee of the European Union project. But you're one of the kind of favored sections of the budget. I, that would be, I, I would venture to say that. Like, we're going to roughly end up with the same numbers at the end, aren't we? It's not, I you're not worried so. about I mean, losing I, 10 I, billion. I don't, are you, look, I mean, don't give, uh, I don't give ideas to the, <laughs> I don't know who was watching. <laughs> well, you, everyone <laughs> can do know, with like 10 ministers, billion. Like, yeah. no, no. no, I hope that, I mean, I, right. I would think that would be just crazy mm -hmm. that we would not get to the amount that we have proposed. I think it's so important, this kind of symbolic way mm. of saying 100 billion, yeah. like these three digits, the first time ever in Europe to have 100 billion. So for me- well, Here's another uh, way to think about it. Two beers per person per year. That's good. That's not that's a lot. Very good. I mean, that's 100 a billion is yeah, a lot, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, no. you could give up yeah, two beers or absolutely. give up your innovation. One of my ideas would have to leave this mission-driven mm. innovation science for the future. Yeah. And one of the missions could be to have 10 cities, 20 cities, you, you choose, mm. that would be carbon neutral. Yeah. And people would then, if you have examples in Europe of cities yeah. that are carbon neutral, I think that that would create a dynamics for other cities to want to be the same. But then that doesn't that require decisions at the regional level or the city level? You know, almost yeah. you could never have a, a national government or the EU dictate yeah. who I is going to become no, carbon neutral. I, yeah, absolutely. I think that we can organize at the You know, it can be a link in between the EU and the cities yeah. because you can just launch an idea mm -hmm. and say, look, who wants to come with me? There's money. Yeah. We have a program. So if you yeah. want to try it, 
we will fund it from the European Union no, level. Then the cities can say, let's go. Now, remember you know? those flagship programs, the future and emerging technology Yes, yes, one, yes, exactly. A that, billion yeah. each. Yeah, yeah. What if in the next budget, or the yeah. one after that, you offered a billion to several cities Absolutely. who competed to get Absolutely. it to see who could be the first carbon Absolutely. neutral city? That was the idea behind when I mm -hmm. talk about this mission-driven innovation in science, like mm -hmm. that you could say, let's have a mission to mm -hmm. make cancer just uh, chronic yeah. disease. Let's have a mission to just clean all the plastics from the oceans. Yeah. Let's have a mission for cities mm -hmm. that are totally carbon neutral. Yeah. And so that is the idea behind, but I yeah. need the money. Okay. <laughs> Ryan, it was really a pleasure and I'm very honored to be the first. I mean, it's always good to be the first. Exactly, you've <laughs> got to be the first. Okay, see you, Commissioner. Bye-bye. Thank you. You were listening to European Commissioner Carlos Moedas. Now it's time for the podcast panel after this message. A message from Ericsson. We are on a quest to create game-changing technology that is easy to use, adapt, and scale. We are dedicated to capturing the full value of connectivity in Europe and across the world. The mobile communication technology we build today will enable innovation in entirely new domains tomorrow, creating endless opportunities for fundamentally changing the way we live. That's why we're working with our partners in transport, manufacturing, healthcare and academia to solve major societal and business challenges. Visit ericsson.com and join us on the quest for easy. And now it's time to introduce a very special Brussels Brains Trust because not only do we have Alva Finn. Hi, Alva. Hi. And Lena Rabarus. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. We Alva. have Zoya Sheftalovich, our Hello. playbook editor, who was a tech reporter here in Brussels once and is now based in Sydney, Australia. And she's here in Brussels joining us for a few weeks. That's right. Special guest. So let's get right on into it. We have two very fascinating topics. The first is Emmanuel Macron's EcoTax. And then the climb down and all of the consequences that might have, not only in France, but Europe and globally. So maybe let's dive into the tax itself, its merits and its flaws. To give a bit of background for anyone who's just been hearing about yellow vests and not the details, the idea is that there would be a carbon tax imposed onto France's existing fuel tax, and that would increase the price of fuel, petrol, by about 3%. So you might end up paying between an extra €1.50 and €3 per tank of a car that you were driving as a family or personal car. And then obviously, if you were a long distance trucker, you would be paying a lot more filling up your tank there. And that was how protests kicked off. Maybe, Alva, you have some opinions about whether this was a good or a bad tax. I think, and if we're looking forward into the future, I think that this will show to people, it's quite unfortunate that some of the gilets jaunes are seen as maybe anti-climate, because I don't think that's necessarily what they are. What it brings to mind is that everybody, when you bring in a tax, you should be looking to see how it impacts the poorest among us and workers. And I don't think Macron did that. And I don't think we should also see it in isolation from the other tax reforms that he's brought in. He's seen as being pro-rich. So I think it stings just that little bit more. While I agree with bringing in carbon taxes on everybody because we all have to change our behaviours, the other taxes that Macron has done, so tax breaks for richer people to try and keep them in France, I think that's one of the problems as well. You know, if he had done 
more in relation to eco taxes for businesses, for richer people. I'm not sure if we would have this problem and if the yellow vests would be getting so much public support. Well, that's the point of the Greens, that the poorest people are being made to pay for a transition that, you know, they didn't create the problems of the current economy and the companies who did most to create our current carbon situation aren't the ones being hit with that tax. Is that, is that a fair point, Lena? No, they are not being hit by a fair tax, that's for sure. But as well, there is both sides, the ultra-left and ultra-right. They are building a lot on this gilet jaune and in this movement. So this popularity is 23%. And any taxes, any movement, any decision, I think, the forces internally will really build on it and try to make it so big in order to fight him because he's coming with a new voice and he is complementing really his program in the environment, in the climate change. He's, he's pushing, he wants to transform France into the best location to invest for international companies and to meet environmental standards so they can comply with their commitments for the climate change. Yeah, but Zoya, is this now just a case of elitism where Emmanuel Macron in his palace doesn't understand the impact that this has on people who are struggling to meet their bills at the end of the month? I think it's a twofold thing. On the one hand, it's a question of appearances. It just looks bad when you impose being a flat tax. It disproportionately affects people who are poorer. So that's obviously a bad look for someone who is known as the president for the rich. So I think that as an optical kind of impression that people get is not going to help that image that he already has. And look, I think it comes on the back of a range of things that he has done that has made him appear or that have made him appear to be this kind of, you know, holier than thou character. And that's everything from, you know, telling off a a young kid who calls him by his nickname that everyone else calls him and demanding respect from a teenager in a crowd who is supporting him to things like these tax changes, to the fact that he's, you know, spent how many tens of thousands of euro on his makeup, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know. So he came in, he criticised the establishment, he said he was going to change things, he said he was going to be different, and then he was kind of really more of the same. Uh, He may have different policies than the other folks did, but he's certainly not, you know, this kind of young, hip man of the people who people assumed he would be. So I think he lost the public. And every episode like this, once you get a certain idea about someone, that you see everything they do through a filter. Mm-hmm. So I think people are seeing these reforms through the filter of, you know, this mate is trying to give a tax break to his friends in the top end of town at the expense of us poor, normal people. So mm-hmm. I think at this point, he's just kind of lost the public faith, good faith. Yeah. And then you combine it with an existing French tradition of not only street protests, but often violent street protests. And excuse the pun, but that really is adding fuel to the the fire to do it this way. But one thing that really struck me, and I'll pull out my Macron moment here, is I interviewed him on stage a couple of years ago, and the one moment where he got uncomfortable when he was, you know, the golden boy that everyone was adoring in the room was when I asked him when was the last time he'd built a piece of IKEA furniture. <laughs> and he just kind of laughed nervously. And I was like, well, go on then, when was it? And he was like, oh, like a long time ago. And the point there was, (laughs) he's never built a piece of Ikea furniture. That was very clear from the answer. And he's not the sort of person who fills up his own car at a petrol station. Ryan, you should have asked him, when was the last time you built a swimming pool? (laughs) (laughs) 
and then usually Ryan are not very good in building IKEA furniture. It's mm-hmm. a male thing, I think. D- don't rescue him here, Lena. Like <laughs> we, we, we're pinning Macron down. Ryan. The true Macron is coming out here, and, and Macronista Lena over here is uh, just defending him. Well, maybe the actual protests themselves, were they a case of genuine grassroots revolt? You know, people in the country doing it tough who are saying, we're not going to take it anymore. Or was it a bunch of anarchists who were just waiting for a moment to inject their anarchy into a protest movement? Probably both. I think it's really interesting to see how they're trying to make leaders out of the movement, even people who have been speaking to the press as representatives of the Yellow Vests have been attacked online and it's seemingly quite difficult for them to appoint some kind of leadership. So it probably is quite grassroots, but there are always going to be violent people who take advantage of street protests, always, especially if they feel disenfranchised. And they've also been coalescing with other movements of young people who are also protesting against the fact that there's going to be, or the proposal is that there will be new criteria for entrance to university, which is another elitist kind of move towards making higher levels of education inaccessible for some people who maybe um, Is poor. the criteria financial or academic? It's academic, but it used to be that if you had a baccalaureate, anybody could apply. So yeah, these things are coalescing together. And it just, in general, young people, when they take to the streets, you know, some disaffected youth are going to be violent. And I think the interesting thing is that actually, as the protest numbers have dwindled, the violence has increased. So I think that's just a, you know, as you say, maybe at the beginning it started as sort of this big movement and maybe some of those original people have gone home and gone, oh, you know what, this is a bit too much for me. And now perhaps who we've got left are some of the ones who are just happy to be quite rowdy and burn things and watch the world, you know, overturn. Well, unlike a lot of protest movements, they won because Emmanuel Mm. Macron backed down this week, four days after he said he wasn't going to, to back down. Did that catch you by surprise? No, because the French are always like that. We have lived that with President Hollande. We've lived that with the President Sarkozy. There's always something. They protest. They go down. They become violent. It's it's a matter of compromise. And uh, the government, they always pull out. So uh, it's good that he backed uh, because it's really not the moment now to have France in a trouble for Europe in general. And uh, as Mr. Salvini has just said, the problem for Mr. Macron is not uh, Europe, it's uh, France itself. So, so many of the other populist leaders around Europe will really be building on, on this and they are watching so what, it closely. So what does that mean now for Macron's vision for European reform? He came in all guns blazing. We've just gone through hundreds, if not thousands of citizen consultation events because he requested other governments do it. Angela Merkel doesn't really want to back most of his reform vision. And now he's missed a 23%. So you can get away with a lot of things and get a lot of people listening when you're the golden boy who stands up to Donald Trump and you've got some nuclear weapons in your arsenal. But now that you're Mr. 23% and you can't even hold the line on a fuel tax, what does that mean for something like climate change and how we tackle it globally? And are we going to get any EU reforms in the next few years? 
That's a very interesting question because France, you know, I see it in some negotiations for the European seven-year multi-annual budget, which is one of the big debates at the moment. You know, France are pushing the Paris Agreement into the negotiations across the board. If they seem to be weakened or their commitment to the Paris Agreement on the basis that he's backed down now on national reforms that would have tackled climate change, you know, what kind of leg do they have to stand on when they're pushing for the Paris Agreement to be put into across the board in the EU budget to make sure that when we're spending EU money that we're climate sensitive and environment sensitive. Exactly, it hurts to do it in France, but Poland, you better do it. Absolutely, yeah. So I think it weakens their stance. And I wish as well, if you'd back down off the tax, then explain what the hell you're going to do to tax businesses. Don't just back down and say, okay, what I was, I was wrong that I didn't put in pro-poor eco-taxes and now this is what I'm going to do don't just back down after big violent protests because then the next time that you try to bring in labour reform or any type of because we do need eco-taxes for people we have to change our social behaviours as well it isn't just businesses but you need to explain why you're doing these things and he failed on that to me it might be a beginning of negotiations between them and compromises so it's not only that he backed off that he will not come up with another alternate I mean I'm sure his party and him are smart enough to just come with alternates. I think it's a really bad look because I think what he's done is he's shown his hand. If he hadn't been so strong on the message that he will never back down, he is the president, you know, it's weak to back down, he would never ever do it. People have now seen behind the curtain and this sets a precedent that means that any time he passes any unpopular reform, this is exactly what's going to happen. And he's a man who wants to pass a lot of unpopular reforms. Yeah, and he also needs to build some kind of movement at the EU level to back European reforms. Mm -hmm. And now if all you are is possibly less than 20 MEPs, you're not this massive force that others like the Liberal Aude group need to try and join. You're not going to peel people off from other groups. You're just going to be a large-ish group that will have to attach itself somewhere else. Or you could have been the man who swung in and said, I want the European Central Bank or I want this. Now you might have to back someone who's not even from your own party, Michel Barnier, to be European Commission president, because that's all anyone's willing to to offer you. And I think, unfortunately, it's a loss of momentum as well for him, because when you come in with that momentum, you can actually capitalize on that and affect change. But why would anyone listen to just, you know, another kind of flash in the pan force? We've seen it elsewhere. You know, there are flashes in the pan on the right. There are flashes in the pan on the left. Why would anyone give him any sort of say on the sorts of things that he wants? And he has up until now had an outsized influence on things like negotiations around the Eurozone budget. But this really just he he has lost, I think, particularly with this and just with the fact that he is where he is in the polls, he's lost that momentum. And I don't see how you get that back. And he's meant to be the representation of an anti-populist force. He was the pride and joy after he beat Le Pen, you know, and Le Pen is now actually more popular than him. And they'll be running for European elections. Imagine if we get more Front National MEPs than on March MEPs. We will. Is this, exactly, is this a failure then of the anti-populist movement in France? What does that look like for the rest of Europe? What's that message? It's bad. I think we won't be able to answer that now because we've already been talking for 16 minutes. (laughs) So we're going to have to move. One thing I will say is all that being said, I don't see what a good option for him was in the face of three weeks of violent protests and the disruption that that was causing. So I just don't know what he could 
would have done. Well, he's not the only one with no good options uh, because migrants who have been convicted of crimes in Denmark are now facing no good options. The government there, a notionally liberal government, but one that needs to have the support of the right-wing Danish People's Party, has announced a plan to essentially warehouse all convicted migrants on an island very isolated island. They're going to spend 100 million euros to put possibly 100 migrants on this island. The government insists this is not a prison, but it's obviously also not a place you'd ever choose to be. What's interesting here is that it is very similar to the Australian model of isolating people that you don't want in your country, but whom you can't return somewhere else. And that it comes at a cost that, you know, probably is about the same as it would cost to put people up in a five-star hotel in Copenhagen, let's be honest. Zoya, you have seen this playbook for more than a decade in Australia. What did this story remind you of when you saw it? This story reminded me of the creation of Australia as a colony of England, (laughs) as a penal state. So it's two levels of inspiration from Australia that I think they've now taken. Look, in all seriousness... A lot of countries, I've seen it a lot, a lot of countries in Europe, when struggling with the question of what to do with the migration influx, have looked to Australia because Australia is seen as a model of how to stop migrants coming to your country. And one of those ways that you stop migrants is by making conditions for them so unpleasant that they just choose not to. This is um, a little bit different in that these are convicted. I'm not sure, are they civil convictions or is it criminal convictions only that we're counting I don't know that either, but it's people who have been told in court that you broke the law. That's for sure. So I think, look, it is a different kind of optically. I think that gives them a little bit of an out where they can say, oh, look, we're not we're not going down the Australian condemned route where the UN says that essentially Australia is in contravention of all of its obligations. This is different. And again, it is a difficult question because what do you do with someone who has been convicted of a violent crime who would face persecution if you sent them back, but on the other hand, you don't want in the community? That being said... It's discrimination though, isn't it? If you put people who happen to be migrants who committed a crime. So two people commit the same crime. One migrant ends up on a cold island in the middle of nowhere and the other one ends up somewhere down the road in a Copenhagen suburb. That's discrimination, isn't it, ladies? I think it's going to be probably struck down at some level, probably by the European Court of Human Rights. We know that a similar scheme that Italy used to have was struck down already. So to me, it's all about optics. You know, anything to do with migration now is about optics. It's going to be more expensive for the taxpayer. It'd probably be struck down either in Denmark or in their own courts or at ECHR level. So to me, this is just something that the right wing in Denmark want to make a statement. Yeah, well, probably. that's an interesting point because that the electoral cycle is quicker than the court cycle. So, you know, this government can run to the polls next year, make the point that it's making with this policy and, you know, If they win, well, we'll deal with that later. And if they lose, then they gave it the best shot and they got to that before the court ever came up with the judgment. It's just a classic populist ruse. Oh, well, it looks good. Oh, we're going to put all of these bad migrants who have committed violent crimes onto an island. And then when you actually look deeper, it's more expensive. It's probably not going to really dissuade anybody from doing anything because it's only going to house 100 people. So, yeah, it's just something that looks good and will get votes, I think. And look, it's classic because Australian refugees who are on our islands, they cost around about 400,000 euro to house. 
and if per they were year. per year, and if they were in the community, they would cost. There's an estimate that's been done. Uh, they would cost ten thousand seven hundred euro per person per year, and you know, so it's not a question of money. Governments are willing to spend absurd amounts of money on something that looks like they're taking action and protecting borders, and you know, I mean, money this- that could go to you know a carbon tax, for example, mm-hmm. instead, you know, mm-hmm. filling the gap of an eco tax <laughs> that no longer exists. But two details Alina, about yeah, this yeah. island. It's one, it's the ferries are called virus to go there. Yeah. And the second detail about this island is that they have a, the biggest lab for animal trials. So it's really interesting that especially Denmark, a country that has a huge budget on training the third world countries on human rights and how we should conduct ourselves. I mean, in my part of the world, they are so, so active. And then they do with this 100 people. They want to put them together on the same island with a lab where they do animal testing. I think it's a... And all uh, for 100 people. There's about 100 refugees per square kilometre in Jordan, isn't there? Uh, Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And I think we didn't put them on an island and actually they are getting to our schools, to our medical system, they are getting jobs. There are so many countries helping out in the international uh, community. But it's a shame. It's bad as well for their brand and for their reputation. Regardless, this happened in Australia or happened in, in many countries. But it's still for Denmark to be like this perfect word for, for outsiders. It's a bit uh, sad and disgusting. Well, I'm sorry, listeners, to leave that bad taste in your mouth as we head off after another wonderful episode of EU Confidential. But that's all we've got time for this week. As always, podcasting is a team effort. So I want to thank Anya Bunker, Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin for everything they do to make the podcast possible. And thank you, Alva, Lena and Zoya Sheftalovich. Thanks for having us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.